Friends, it is my privilege today in a very brief way to introduce our speaker for the entire weekend, especially to those of you who have not had opportunity to participate. But as a young 19-year-old, somewhere around the year 1996, my college roommate was from Memphis, Tennessee, and I went home on a long weekend with him. We were both interested in ministry. We were not particularly interested in the things of the church, though. We found that stuffy and starchy. We were engaged in college ministry and thought that was the next wave of the entire future of the church. And so I attended church with my friend on a Sunday morning. He said, I'm excited for you to meet our new minister. He's been there for a couple of years, and there's some good things going on in the church. So Second Presbyterian in Memphis, Tennessee. And I still remember that day because as a sophomore, a deep impression was made on me. There was a man who was passionate about God, who loved him, who loved the church's worship and loved its traditions, and I noted something. There is something to learn here. My life continued to be intertwined with Second Presbyterian through my friendship with the Hickman family, and it continued to be intertwined as I went to seminary and then went to do an internship to finish off my seminary training, and then also to take my first job as a pastor. And this was all under Sandy Wilson. And um, it was the same man who had had such an impression on me as a 19-year-old. And so today to have him here to preach and to teach us and to guide us through the weekend uh, is a privilege. To, it's a privilege for me to share him with you. It's a wonderful joy for all the threads of the Colson family's life to be woven together in this moment. And so I warmly introduce to you and ask you to warmly welcome my friend and my mentor, Sandy Wilson. Chuck, I am so glad that at 19 years of age, you knew Pat Hickman and came to Second Presbyterian Church, and you have been a blessing in my life ever since. And I thank you and Melissa for your warm hospitality. We had a great dinner together last night, and I learned a little bit more about you, and it was all good. And uh, thank you for your warm hospitality to me. I got to my hotel room. And there's a beautiful gift basket there. I've been munching on those things all weekend. I've gained five pounds, I'm quite sure. And uh, it's just been a joy to be here with you this weekend. Sandra McCracken did a great job of opening our conference on Friday night. It was just a refreshment to the soul. And then if you've been able to join us uh, yesterday, you know that we're talking about revival and we're spending a, most of our time looking at the Old Testament in revival, in particular, Second Chronicles, which is our text for today. And in Second Chronicles 7.14, the chronicler lays out the program for what he's going to say in Second Chronicles. And uh, he's basically teaching the people that even in their day, which seemed to be around 400 B.C., when Israel was under Persian oppression, later on it would be Greek oppression, later on it would be Roman oppression, but the chronicler is writing to say, there's a way for you. God has not abandoned you. And no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what mine are, there's a way for us. So the chronicler recalls them to their fundamentals. And just like we're coming to the table in a few moments, what does that do for us? Of course, we're entering into immediate communion with Christ at his table. We're looking forward to our great future when the wedding feast of the Lamb will be spread for us. But we're also remembering what God has done for us and that he's always available to us just as he was in days of old. That's what the chronicler is doing. So we spent our time yesterday looking 
at the circumstances for revival and the need for it. And certainly, if you know anything about our circumstances in this country and in the evangelical church in this country, you know that we desperately need to be revived by the Lord. Some of you this morning, I know, are thinking, Lord, I need to be revived. I feel like sometimes I'm chewing on cardboard in my spiritual life, getting nowhere. Well, he's available to you. We learned that he also is standing at the door and knocking, as Christ said to the church in Laodicea. And if anyone opens the door, he will come in. So we want to hear him knocking on our, the door of our hearts, and we want to open our hearts to him today. Then we also yesterday looked at the way of revival, and that comes right from verse 14 in chapter 7, as we shall see. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I revive them. So we looked at the way of revival, and this morning in Sunday school, most of you were there, when we looked at a powerful example of revival in the life of Josiah, King Josiah. And today we want to look at the blessing revival as we conclude our study of verse 14 and look at the latter half of that great verse. So would you please stand with me as we pray and then read God's word together, verses 11 through 14. Let us pray. Father, we are deeply grateful for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light into our path. And we would pray, just as Samuel did as a young boy himself, speak, O Lord, for your servant listens through Jesus Christ. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 11, hear the word of God. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I've been known for not finishing my sermons and lectures on time, but I think this is the first time in a long time that I delayed our worship service by 15 minutes. You know, the first church I served, the deacon said, Pastor, uh, we've noticed you've been going over a little bit. And I said, well, you know, the church I came from had a clock on the face of the balcony, and I just kind of lose track of time now. And they said, okay, so the next week there was a clock installed <laughs> on the balcony. The next month the deacons met. And they said, Pastor, we don't think you need a clock on the balcony. We think you need a calendar. Uh, so, uh, but I promise to try to do better. We have three really important things to look at this morning from our text. And they are the three great blessings of revival. The reason that you and I want to be revived is so that we know him. He's the great reward. It's all about him. 
The chronicler wanted people to come back to the temple, to restore temple worship, to reinstate the priesthood, to devote themselves to the Davidic kingship because they had no Davidic king at that point. But ultimately, his plea was not to make Jerusalem great again. His plea was to exalt the name of Christ again, the name of God again. And of course, ultimately, his son, the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal of revival, is that he would be exalted. But also that we would enjoy his being exalted. That's where our joy comes from. Our joy is always derived from his joy. What gives us joy is to know that he is singing over us in heaven. That the Lord Jesus Christ is satisfied and happy. Oh, then our joy is complete. That's the heart and the ambition of the Christian man and woman. In knowing him, there are some experiences that we have in life. And that is precisely what the chronicler is laying out for the Israelites and for us this morning. That we would know if we will humble ourselves and come to him and pray, if we will seek him with all of our hearts, and if we will put behind us and burn the bridges to all of the idolatry and the wicked ways of our lives and the lives of those around us, then we can be assured of certain promises. He says, if you do this, then I will. And he will. God is a God of his promises. And here's what he says he will do. Three things. First of all, this. He will hear your prayers. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't take this for granted, and I don't think you should either. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles, for example, to Psalm 66, and look with me at verse 18, and we'll see what is said about our prayers when there's iniquity in our heart. The psalmist says, 66, 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened so when we hang on to our idols, when we are unrepentant, the prayers do not go heard. We don't take for granted that prayers are automatically heard. Look, for example, in, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15. Once again, Isaiah says, When you spread out your hands, says God, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. He's talking to his people. They're coming to the communion table. And he says, you're offering your sacrifices. I will, and you're offering prayers. I will not listen. And why? Well, you can see why if you read that first chapter. Because of their injustice to one another. Their unkindness to each other. Their greed and their idolatry. So, having God hear our prayers is not automatic. But in Jesus Christ... When we trust him and look to him for life and for revivification, we can be assured that he hears our prayers. Let me tell you, when he hears your prayers, he divides the Red Sea. He gives water out of a rock. He holds back the Jordan River. He causes the sun to stand still. He does many mighty things when he's answering prayer. Have you ever experienced revival and had a sense of God answering your prayers, listening to your prayers? 
Now, as C.S. Lewis said, it is a blessing for us that God doesn't answer all of our prayers with yes. We'd be in really bad shape. Uh, we didn't, don't even know how to ask him. We ask him for all the wrong things. And so many things we ask for, if we receive them, it would be to our destruction. Well, God loves us too much to answer those prayers. And we also know that he answers his prayer, our prayers in his time. So that a good number of our prayers, if not most of them, will be answered in the new heavens and the new earth. But don't tell me that's pie in the sky. That's reality. That's where I'm going. And I look forward to it. And there I'm going to see all the answers to my prayers. And beyond. In fact, I couldn't even imagine enough to pray for the good things that God is going to give his people on that last day. So it is true that he answers our prayer. John puts it this way. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. We have confidence. We have communion with him. He is listening to us. And he is giving us not only what we ask, but even better, he's giving us what we need and don't even know to ask for. That is revival. In having that kind of relationship with the living God. And that's exactly what's happened in the key revivals that we've mentioned that have taken place in our own country. And particularly the revival of 1858, when, as I mentioned yesterday, Jeremiah Lamphere, a layman, put up a little sign on his office door, anyone who would come and pray for revival, please join me at such and such a time. No one came. He prayed by himself. The next week, he prayed with 15 people. To make a long story short, before the year was out, there were so many people in prayer meetings, the New York journalists could not get to all the meetings adequately to count all the thousands of people who were praying for a revival. And between March and May of 1858, 50,000 residents of Manhattan were converted. And throughout our country in 1858, many, many people were converted. In fact, uh, spiritual demographers tell us there were perhaps a million conversions in the U.S. in 1858 alone. And that was when our country was less than 30 million people. Don't tell me that God doesn't hear prayer. And so we pray to him that he may hear our prayers. And that's exactly what he promises to do. Now, secondly, notice in the text, he says, I'll not only hear your prayers, I will forgive your sins. Now, we're looking at Old Testament material. And God would discipline his people when they sinned against him. And they would experience consequences from their sin. Ultimately, of course, we know that Israel was taken into exile to Babylon because of their sins. And God promised that he would lay aside those sins and bring them back to their own nation, which is where they are now when the Chronicler is writing to them. And he forgives or sets aside the consequences of their sins. And what the Lord is saying is that I will remove the burdens and the consequences of your misbehavior when you turn to me in revival. I will forgive your sins. Some of you may know the story that Max Lucado 
uh, has told about a, a young woman, a teenager named Christina, who lived in a, a sprawling suburb uh, in Brazil. And uh, she got very tired of her little humble life. She lived in a one-room hut with her family. There was just a little wash basin and a little stove where they kept warm and cooked their food. And she had a little mat she lived on and she said, enough of this, I wanna go to the city. And so she went to the city. She just left home. Her mother, Maria, was heartbroken. And Maria went after her. She got a bus ticket to go down to the city to find her daughter knowing how her daughter would have to survive as someone with no education, no job opportunity. She knew exactly what her daughter would have to do, even to have food to eat. So Maria, before she got on the bus, she took the remaining money she had, and she went to a little photo booth in a, in a drugstore and took multiple pictures of herself until she ran out of money. She went to the city, and she went to all the bars and all the nightclubs and all the fleabag hotels, and she just put a little picture of herself on the mirror with a note on the back. And she looked for her daughter everywhere and didn't find her. So she finally ran out of pictures and ran out of time and had to go back home. So she left. Some days later, Christina is coming down the rickety old stairs of a flea bag hotel. And she looks into the worn lobby there and sees something on the mirror that stuns her. It looks like a picture of her mother. And sure enough, she gets closer to it, and it is a picture of her mother. She takes it and turns and looks on the back, and there's this note. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. Christina did. And the Lord is saying to us, you come home. Your sins are forgiven you. And in revival, we have this sense, this assurance of our salvation. This is what compels us in revival, is the joy of knowing that our sins have been forgiven at the cost of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He paid it all. We owe all to him. This is what revival is. We have a sense of the holiness of God, of the depth of our sin, and of the greatness of our salvation. And we are moved then to share this news with others and to serve others in deeds of mercy and kindness. That's personal revival and corporate revival. And it is what we are to be praying for, to know that he will hear our prayers and he will forgive our sins. Now, thirdly, notice he says, I'll not only hear your prayers and forgive your sins, but I will heal your land. Now, of course, in a theocracy, as in the Old Testament, there is a holy land, a land set apart that is for God's holy people. On a holy hill, they worship at the holy temple. It's all sacred. It's set apart. It is sacred space. And God promises that when they seek him with all their hearts and they turn from the idols, they are in communion with him and they've humbled their hearts to acknowledge their need of him. 
He will bring fruitfulness to the land and he will protect them from their surrounding enemies. I will heal your land. And in theocracy, he does that. We're going to return to the theocracy in the new heavens and the new earth. And you will find there great fruitfulness and defense finally and forever from all of your enemies. And you will find perfect communion with him and with each other in that great return to the perfect theocracy. However, in these days, we live in dispersion. We are dispersed among the nations. And so we don't have a holy land yet. The holy land's going to come down out of heaven. We're living in the Babylon of the world as God's people, as salt and light. So what does it mean for him to heal our land? Well, all one has to do is to look at the history of revival, both in the New Testament and in church history since the New Testament, to see the kind of healing that he does. When we seek him in his word and through prayer in fellowship among his people, if you are a believer, you know precisely what I'm talking about when we talk about the healing of the land, the healing of your life. I mentioned to some of you yesterday that the church uh, in, on Lookout Mountain in Tennessee, Chattanooga, where I pastored some years ago, my predecessor was Dr. George Long. Some of you may have known him or heard of his name. When George came to Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we had 24 elders. Two of them were Christians. Two of them were converted. That means 22 were not. Through the decade of one liberal ministry, that church had turned from an evangelical church to a very secular society church. George came as one who simply stuck to the Bible, who knew how to pray. He was stout-hearted for the Lord, but he was a very humble and gentle man. Well, it nearly killed him. But eventually, let me tell you what happened among other things. George decided to call an associate pastor. His name was Roger. And Roger was just simply a discipler, especially of men. His wife, Joy, a discipler of women. Roger was in his 30s. And where do you start with a church like that? where there's so few genuine believers. Well, he found some other 30-somethings, some men who met once a month. You bring your own booze and they, they rotate the moderator who selects the issue to be discussed for the next month and you meet in his house and you discuss some world issue, international relations, the economy, something like that. That's discipleship in a liberal church. Roger just simply asked if he could join that group. They said, well, blankety blank, yes, we'd love to have you. And so he joined the group. And he participated in the discussions on world issues for about five months with these guys, about four months, I guess it was. And then finally, they looked to him and said, well, Roger, I guess it's your turn. Why don't you pick the issue? We'll meet in your house next month. What would you like for us to study in preparation for our meeting? Here's what Roger said. Well, I think it'd be nice if each one of us just simply read the Bible, something in the Bible every day and keep a journal on what you read and then let's come back and talk about it. And they said, well, blankety blank, that sounds like a lot of fun. I haven't done that. Let's do that. Let me give you the bottom line of the story. One of those men became the president of Covenant College eventually. One of those men got converted and became the chairman of the second largest Christian charitable organization in the world. 
One of those men was the CEO of one of the largest banks in Chattanooga. He ended up being an old man going as a missionary, a lay missionary to Australia. One of those men led Lookout Mountain Church when it eventually got revived as a church in their urban ministry in Chattanooga. He was leading the way for the poor and sharing the gospel with them. I'm talking about, ladies and gentlemen, a radical transformation. You know why? One simple man who was revived encouraged others to get revived by seeking the Lord in the Word of God. That's how it happens. That's what the Lord is saying to us. If we'll humble ourselves and pray and seek His face and turn from our wicked ways, then He will hear us. He will answer our prayers. He will forgive us and give us the assurance of it. And He will heal us in ways that only He can heal. And He will do things through us that only He can do. All praise and glory and honor be to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the author and giver of life and the source of the revival of every one of our souls and of the soul of this church. Amen. Let us pray. Father, how can we adequately thank you? We only have our feeble words and our confused hearts, but we bring them to you to offer to you what we have. And so with our words, we praise you. We thank you. We adore you. We love you. With our feeble hearts and confused spirits, we would yet come and cast ourselves at your feet and pray, Lord, hear our prayers. Forgive our sins. Heal our land. Heal our lives. Heal our souls. Heal our families. Heal our relationships. Not just that we may be made happy, but that you, O oh Lord, may be exalted in every aspect of our lives. And as we now pray that you will come in power and breathe upon us by your Holy Spirit, we do with earnestness pray, O oh breath of life, come sweeping through us. Revive your church with life and power. Through Jesus Christ, amen.